everyone. My name is Michelle from The Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from last Sunday's sermon. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's Word and how much He loves you. Let's jump into the Word. Good morning. So we are going to spend our time together this morning in Psalm 95. So I'll give you a moment to find Psalm 95 in your Bibles. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It's going to be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, if you don't have a Bible at all, please let me give you one. We have have Bibles for you. Uh, Just come see me afterwards. Be happy to put one in your hands. Um, I always feel like just a little discombobulated when I'm seeing you for the first time now that I don't do announcements every week. It's like I'm not used to saying good morning because I've already said good morning to you usually. It's just like it's a whole thing for me. It's just very routine oriented, you know. All right, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout out praises to our protector who delivers us. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout out to him in celebration. For the Lord is a great God, a great king who is superior to all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our creator, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep he owns. Today... If only you would obey him. He says, do not be stubborn like they were at Meribah, like they were that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors challenged my authority and tried my patience, even though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I was continually disgusted with that generation. And I said, these people desire to go astray. They do not obey my commands. So I made a vow in my anger that they will never enter into the resting place I had set aside for them. This is the word of the Lord. So I used to do this weird thing. I didn't do it on purpose, but I did it consistently. And I don't so much do it anymore, but back in the day when I was younger, I always did it. So I was a, uh, I was a subscriber to Slam Magazine in junior high and through high school, really. Slam Magazine, anybody here? Anyone? I thought Randy maybe would at least know what that is. Yeah, Rob. Okay. So my best buddy Dave and I both were. We were probably on the youngest end of their subscribership. Is that a word? Subscribership for sure. We'd always be excited for the next issue because we loved hoops. We would discuss these articles at length, especially enjoy the letters to the editor and what have you. But the thing that I would do that was so weird is that when I would get that magazine in the mail, I would start at the back of the magazine. I would start at the back of the magazine. Rachel's shaking her head. This is infuriating her. Does anybody else do this with magazines? Joe, yeah, thank you. You're normal, right? Um, Because I I, I realized I did this one day. I I sat down with a magazine. I started at the back. I'm like, what am I doing? I don't read books this way. Why am I doing this? And then I Googled it, I remember, way back when. And it said it wasn't an uncommon thing. Some people do that. Me and Joe, we're some people. Well, today I kind of want to revisit that odd skill and go through this psalm backwards. Or not go through it backwards necessarily, but start at the end. And it, it sounds weird, but just hear me out for a half an hour, maybe a little longer. My, this, the sermon was a little short last week. I borrowed that time this week, so just bear with me. 
but this psalm that we just read is largely a warning, I think, about hardening your heart. And I think there are some principles in it for how not to. And so we start backwards with, the res- with God's response to the people who did harden their heart. And it says he made a vow in his anger to never allow them to enter into his resting place that he set aside for that. That was his response to these people. Now, now you might say... But we have Jesus, he died on the cross, receiving the just penalty for our sins, so now we only receive his just reward for a righteous life. And yes, that's true, and you've clearly been paying attention, thank you very much. But, but as the sheep of his pasture, there's still a way we can live where we never really enter into the shepherd's rest. And then there is this hardening of heart that, it can, that can occur where, where, where we won't forever enter into his rest. Christianity isn't a one-time response to an altar call sort of deal. If God saves you, nothing will change that. But the evidence of a saved one is a fidelity to Christ until the end. It's not that you never sin majorly. It's not that you never doubt or struggle. It's that you keep the faith. That you continue to have trusting faith in Jesus is Lord. And that's not a works-based righteousness. It's completely a grace that you would ever even be able to keep the faith. But obviously, the thing that makes you a Christian, that saves you, is trusting Jesus as Lord. And including in that is trusting his life, death, and resurrection as being sufficient for your salvation. But the end goal of the enemy of your soul, once you've come to faith, is to snatch that faith away and to harden your heart. To build, to build these calluses over your heart so thick that your heart becomes this just impenetrable rock. And so today, the, the question is, how do, we not become, how do we not become like the generation in verse 11 of this psalm? The ones that never would enter into his rest. That's, that's the real question this morning. And I think I have three ways that we can ensure that we don't become like those people. And they are, we remember We get soft-hearted towards God, and we keep going. And so this psalm starts out with a command for worship, much like our psalm from last week did, Psalm 135. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, remembering and worship. Those two concepts are so tied together. In fact, I could have used either word for my first point. It It is in our remembering who God is and what he's done that our hearts are then stirred to worship. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. But why? Why do that? What, what reason is there for such great joy, we might ask? And so verses 1 through 7 are, are peppered with reasons for such joy. Let us shout praises to our protector who delivers us. This God is a protector who delivers us. We have a protector. Who knows Who knows the things that God has already protected you from that you'll never know about? And Israel has seen God's hand protecting them for sure. They experienced God's deliverance. If you recall the whole parting of the Red Sea incident, just to name one, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Remember that this God protected and delivered you, the psalmist says. Don't ask, don't ask, what have you done for me lately? Remember the God who has done these things in the past and trust that that same God will do those things in the future. For the Lord is a great God, a great king who is superior to all the gods. The psalmist doesn't even bother to say there are no other gods. Rather, none of them have anything on Yahweh, our God. Our God could crush those gods with a thought. They have nothing on him. He is the undisputed 
champion of the gods. We've, we've seen it throughout history. Baal was never alive, and the emperors who thought they were divine are all decomposing somewhere. But Yahweh lives. Praise Him because He's great, not only great, but superior to all other challengers. This is who our King is. And then it says, The depths of the earth are in His hand. The mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it. His hands formed dry land. Take a look at nature. If you're like me, don't go wandering around in it. That's not necessary. No need to be an extremist, but just look at it. Look at it. If I asked you to create the sun, you wouldn't have any clue where to start. That is less of a task to God than me sending an email. That's who our God is. Look at the oceans, also God. Look at the deserts, God did that too. God has a lot of hits when it comes to the landscape of our world. Mountains, depths, seas, dry land, all of it, God made that. And the God that made all of that also knew you before he made any of it. And he loves you so deeply that he sent Jesus to die for you. This God is the incredible creator and he's also our personal father. Because he didn't just make mountains and seas, he made humans. So he's your creator. He said, as cool as it was to make this world, I really most of all wanted to make a Joe and a Jackie and a Susan. That will be my masterpiece. Not only could you not fathom creating humanity just from like the technical standpoint, but if you were God, would you even want to? Seems like a hassle. Costly. It cost him his son, and he knew. He knew it would, but this perfectly good God created us anyways. In love, he created us. And because of that, he is our God. We are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep that he owns. And, and we talked about in Psalm 23, he is the shepherd. We are the sheep, right? He loves us, cares for us, protects us, nurtures and sustains us. That's the way that he loves us. That's the relationship of God to his people. And we need to remember sort of all of this if our hearts aren't going to be hard. We need to treasure these things in our hearts. And if, and if we don't only know these things, but if we cherish these truths, we will be led to worship. And worship will lead us not to be hard-hearted people towards God. And those are the sort of people that will enter that resting place that God has set aside for us. That will both experience rest in Christ here and now and also in the age to come. Next, how can we not become like the people in verse 11 who hardened their hearts towards God and never entered into his rest? We need to become soft-hearted towards God no matter what comes our way. We need to, to do the opposite. In therapy, which I'm a huge proponent of, there's this concept of acting opposite. Acting opposite. Your emotions want to stay, therapists will tell you. When you're happy, you smile, you celebrate, you do different things that keep those emotions around a little longer. You naturally do these things that keep the emotion around. But when you're angry, you might yell and rant and throw things, or you might hit things, and you think, I'm just letting it out. But in fact, you're possibly doing exactly what will keep you angry. When you're depressed, you might want to frown and withdraw and not take the call or accept the lunch invitation. Those things aren't digging you out of depression. They're, in fact, keeping you there. Therapists would recommend, at least mine would, acting 
opposite, acting contrary to your negative emotions in order to change how you're feeling. So when you're depressed, the subject of conversation for me, smile, take the call, accept the lunch invite. You might find you're not as depressed as you are. By no means is the psalmist aware of 21st century CBT principles, but this idea of cultivating a soft heart towards God is a matter of acting opposite sometimes. Today, if you would only obey him, or literally in the Hebrew, if you would listen to his voice, if you would listen to his voice, what's his voice saying? Specifically here, he's saying, do not be stubborn like they were at Meribah, like they were in that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors challenged my authority, tried my patience, even though they had seen my work. Okay, you say, so what's he talking about here? Where are these places? Who are the, the they that he's talking about, right? Well, I'm going to tell you. So the incident that the psalmist is talking about here is mentioned in Exodus 17. And I'm just going to kind of walk you through Exodus 1 through 16 very speedily for some context. Israel, enslaved, oppressed by the Egyptians. Moses, who you might have heard of. Moses, anybody? Yeah, kind of a big deal. He becomes the God-appointed leader to bring Israel out of Egypt. In chapter 3, God appears to Moses. Burning bush, anyone? Some of you? Yeah, familiar? Okay. And says to him, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with, anyone? Milk and honey. Yes, right. Very good. The territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And he answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be a sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you all will worship God at this mountain. So then God begins to send Moses to speak to Pharaoh. Moses tries to sidestep this responsibility. God tells him to do it anyway. Moses approaches Pharaoh with this, Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Not smart, Pharaoh. But regardless of what Pharaoh says, God promises he will prevail and the Israelites will escape bondage in Egypt. And then God sends plagues to try to persuade Pharaoh. And let me just tell you, this really hit home this week because the week after Low Country Boil, we have like the doors open and the plague of flies that I experienced all week was out of this world. But anyways, the, the, the plagues, blood and frogs and gnats and flies and death of livestock boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and lastly, the death of the firstborn. And of course, this is where we get the Passover, when God instructs his people how to be spared the death of the firstborn. And after each of these plagues, there's a pattern. Each time, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. It will either say, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh hardened his heart. It kind of goes back and forth. Either way, each time God sent a plague, it was a chance for Pharaoh to concede or repent, but he doubled down, hardening his heart against the work of God. Chapter 13, they're planning this exodus from Egypt, and Moses implores the Israelites, remember, remember this day when you came out of Egypt, 
out of the place of slavery, for the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. Remember, remember, remember. Don't forget this. Let this divine action of God on your behalf sustain your faith in dry seasons. Going back to my first point for a second, you have to remember the times that God has done things for you and in you in the times when God feels absent. You have to. He's not absent. He didn't suddenly die. The the God that acted in your life in those times is the God who still loves you and walks by your side today. You may not know the reason. We might not know the reason that he isn't as evident in this moment as he was in those mountaintop moments, but he doesn't owe you a reason. Let the, the big God moments in your life strengthen and sustain the moments when he is seemingly quieter. In chapter 14, again, the plan involves... Again, this plan involves the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and, and then the, the iconic and well-known escape through the Red Sea. Red Sea, anybody? You've read that? That's a good one. God parts the waters. The Israelites cross over like they're on dry land. And when the Egyptians followed, what happened? Yeah, you were going to say that, right? The water returned and not even one of the Egyptians survived. Chapter 15, Moses and Israel sing this beautiful song to the Lord. Some of the lyrics include, You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The water heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. They just don't write worship songs like they used to. You know what I mean? But but really, they continue. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? With your faithful love, you will lead your people who you have redeemed. You will guide them in your holy dwelling with your strength. A beautiful testament to the God who just delivered them. So this all happened. Then immediately these former slaves who were overworked and beaten and treated horribly in Egypt, they journey through the wilderness in freedom, mind you, for three days without water. And what do they do? They grumble. Y'all ever grumble? Some of you? Yeah, some of you have grumbled before. They grumble. If I were, like, if I were God, I'd be like, you know who had more than enough water, guys? Those Egyptians that I just left in the bottom of the Red Sea. They had a lot of water. But I'm not God, thank goodness, right? But God isn't like that. He makes water available for them. Then they get hungry, and they say, oh, if only we would have died in Egypt. At least we had food. We're going to starve to death out here. So God provides manna and quail. He is more, way more patient than you or, or I am, clearly. And so they eat this manna for 40 years, even though they often don't follow the Lord's instructions about it. And next is this event in question, the one that they were talking about in this psalm. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with our thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people 
and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Do you see the irony then of Psalm 95? All through this narrative that we walked through very quickly about Pharaoh and the Israelites in bondage, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He hardened his heart. Now the Israelites, they're free. And what do they do? They become like Pharaoh, right? They become like Pharaoh. Sure, they aren't enslaving people, but Psalm 95 says, don't be stubborn like they were at Meribah, which literally means do not harden your hearts. They have become like their nemesis, hard-hearted towards their God. And what was that like? Massa means testing, and Meribah means quarreling. They were testing and quarreling with God. They weren't contending for a need. They weren't like the story Jesus tells where a friend asks for bread uh, for a house guest he has arriving and just keeps asking and asking, persistent, but not questioning anyone's goodness, right? No, they watch this God take a sea and make it dry land so that they could be rescued, and they say, wow, God, that was cool, I guess, but now we're thirsty. Now we're hungry. They so quickly forgot that God delivered them and thought that he couldn't or wouldn't do the much easier task of providing them food and water. They forgot that they were people of his pasture and that he was a good shepherd. They tried my patience even though they had seen my work, he says. Don't you see, God gave them all the evidence necessary to trust him and they couldn't get out of their own way to do it. Listen to his voice and keep a soft heart by reflecting on the work you've seen him do. Remember who he is and what he's done, and then keep keep a soft heart by remembering all the times he's come through for you. Don't test your God. Don't fight with your God. Be honest with him, but remember who you're talking to when you approach him. Verse 10, for 40 years I was continually disgusted with, with that generation. I said, these people desire to go astray. Literally, the Hebrew translate, wanderers of heart are thee. In spiritually lean times and physically lean times, when you're hungry or thirsty, as was the case for the Israelites, don't be a wanderer of heart. The second God isn't just answering at the snap of your finger. Don't go looking for another God to satisfy you. That's what a wanderer of heart is. God isn't satisfying me at this moment. He isn't at my beck and call. God isn't interesting to me at this moment. What else would be then? I'm going to go find out. I'll find something else to fill me if God isn't going to meet my immediate need. Wait on the Lord instead. Don't be a wanderer of heart. Be soft-hearted towards God, remembering all of his past work in your life. And then lastly, how do we not become like the people who won't enter the resting place God has set aside for them? How can we be assured that one day we will enter his rest? One, we remember who God is, what he's done, how God has loved us. Two, we have a soft heart towards God even when our circumstances give us a desire to wander. And now three, we keep going. You might be looking at your Bible and you might say, I don't explicitly see this in the passage. And you're right, it's not there. 
But later, a New Testament author who we don't know, at least we don't know by name, we don't know by work alone, right? Uh, he would pick up the psalm or whoever would pick up the psalm as they wrote a letter that we've called Hebrews. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 16, we read this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they, will always, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Sound familiar? Continues. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any in you and there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily, while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ, for we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Watch out. Watch your heart that it doesn't become evil and unbelieving and turn away from the living God. But encourage each other daily. You see, this is communal work. Encourage me to keep following Jesus, and hopefully I can encourage you to do the same. Have conversations with one another about your faith. Text each other. How is it with you and Jesus lately? We need each other. Our spirituality isn't totally on someone else. It's still ours, but you may be the reason someone else keeps the faith. I've seen way too many leave the faith. And, and I don't mean just seem to not care as much about Jesus as they used to, but people who would actually say, yeah, I don't believe in that stuff anymore. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I don't think he's God. I don't trust the Bible. I know people in ministry who've done that, people whose faith seemed way more vibrant than mine. And I wonder, what caused the calluses on their heart? And I wonder how a community that put Jesus first and had spiritually deep conversations could have helped. I also pray and believe that God can take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh again. Some of us have been sold a version of Christianity where you pray the sinner's prayer and you just kind of live a, a moral life for the most part and never really think too much about Jesus again, right? And if, if someone asked you if you were a Christian, you'd say, well, yeah, I was at a Billy Graham crusade. In 1979, I walked down the aisle, I prayed this prayer. But you haven't dusted off a Bible or, or prayed maybe since that day. But the author of Hebrews tells us faith, Christianity, following Jesus, being one of the rescued ones. It's not this 45-second thing done at some arena during a crusade. It's, it's a whole life's work. For, we've, for we have become participants in Christ if... Not if we prayed the prayer. If we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start. The reality or the confidence. Yes, I believe if you're actually saved by God through what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, you will always be saved by him. 
I believe that's true. But the evidence of that is that you keep the faith until you take your last breath. How, how do you be assured that you will enter his rest one day? And by that I don't mean the land, I mean enter his presence one day. You keep going. You keep going. You keep the faith. So remember what he's done. Cultivate a soft heart towards God, even in the midst of circumstances and emotions that should harden your heart. And then keep going. Spur one another on to keep going. Let's be that kind of community here. When was the last time, ask yourself, when was the last time that you had a spiritual conversation with someone here? Not just about Jesus, but about them and their spiritual life and their personal faith. When was the last time you had a conversation that was something along the lines of, how is it with you and Jesus right now? Maybe this week is a good time to try that. Michelle, you can come up. Jesus went to prepare a place for us. If it were not so, he would not have told you. There there is rest in God in this life, and there is rest one day that never ends. One day you will live at rest in the presence of God if you're his. Jesus worked living the perfect life and then dying an excruciating death on the cross in our place. That was his work. Jesus worked and his work was perfect and now we rest in the finished work of Christ. He worked, you get rest. This Jesus who on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup again, giving thanks and said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so here at the table, we take communion every week, taking the bread, dipping it in the cup so that we might remember what Jesus has done for us. Remembering in this way should be a remedy, just one remedy against the hardening of our hearts. If we, if we truly take this time every week to remember just the gravity of what Jesus has done for us. So we take the bread, dip it in the cup. Communion's available towards the back on my left. Gluten-free communion available towards the back on my right. My friends Randy and Rachel will be available on either side of the room to pray. If you need someone to just come and put a hand on your shoulder and lift up your concerns or needs to the Father, they would love to do that. And so we're going to pray right now. And then you can take time to sit and reflect, to pray. And then take communion whenever you're ready. We take communion at your pace here at the table. So let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, that we are the sheep of your pasture, the sheep that you own, that you, the good shepherd, are our shepherd. I thank you for all the times you've come through for us, all the times we've seen your hand. God, I pray for anyone sitting here today that is in just kind of a dry place spiritually, that their hearts wouldn't be hardened, but that just now you'd start to bring to mind all the times that you were you were so real to them those quiet times where where they felt your presence those those moments when they saw prayers answered where it seemed almost miraculous the way you provided bring those times to mind that that they would remember that their heart would soften that they would come to a place of trust in you god let us be a people here at the table Uh, a soft-hearted people. Let us be a people that spurs one another on to faith, that has meaningful conversations. God, I just pray about this community, the people here walking with you, that, that, that none of them would ever walk away.
that this would be a place where when we look back at, at this time that we're like all those people still keeping the faith still walking with Jesus pray that you would do that here in Jesus name amen thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service if you're interested in joining us in the future you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.